For the six months beginning in October 1913, while he continued to function in his outer life, each evening Jung turned to his inner world and asked himself, what next? He focused intensely on the material that revealed itself in a process he termed active imagination. These experiences he recorded in the black books. Subsequently, he prepared a text accompanied by images and wrote it up in the red book. Jung tells us in the black books that he spoke and wrote for those who wanted to listen and read. Jung says of this time spent on the compilation of the book, the years when I pursued the inner images were the most important time of my life. Everything else is to be derived from this. That was from a talk given by Mary Duffy to the C.G. Jung Society of Melbourne. And welcome to the Society's podcast, I'm Ariel Moy. The Jung Society offers a space for the exploration and development of Jungian ideas and practice. We offer talks on the third Friday evening of every month, as well as courses and workshops, a Jungian library, a newsletter and discussion groups. Please visit our website at jungsocietymelbourne.com or our Facebook page. Mary Duffy is a Melbourne artist and art therapist, a life member and former president of the Jung Society of Melbourne. She's previously given talks and conducted courses on Nietzsche's Thus Speaks Zarathustra and the Red Book. Her relationship with the Red Book is a rich and long one. And in today's talk, Mary invites us into Jung's magnificent inner journey into the unconscious. In a series of illustrations, exploratory texts, and the context in which they emerged, she conveys how Jung provides us with his first conceptualizations and practical engagements with active imagination and the archetypes of the psyche. The Red Book covers the periods 1913 until 1929 and sets the groundwork for Jung's practice, writings and teachings to come. We hope you enjoy. The Red Book I want to begin by telling you the story of how I became so involved with the Red Book. Yes, like everyone who has read Sam Jung, I had heard about it. Most of all, I knew with what deep reverence certain writers I was familiar with regarded it. So along with many others, I was very curious. In 2004, as president of the Jung Society, I received a letter from the Philemon Foundation, the eventual publishers of the Red Book. It was an impassioned plea for funds to support the publication of the book. At the time, our society here in Melbourne had just emerged from a critical financial situation over the previous two years. I went to a committee meeting with the Philemon letter in hand and said that I thought that we should contribute to this project, given that what the Foundation was doing was giving voice to Jung and his work for the future. Yes, our situation was parlous, but we had to have faith in the future worth of the, of the work we were doing. Contributing to this project was such a statement. The committee, without hesitation, decided to give $500. By the time it was converted into US currency, it was petty, really. But our reasoning was if every Jungian organisation made a contribution the publication would proceed. We received appropriate thanks and updates over the ensuing years. Then in 2009, I received a letter saying that the Jung Society Melbourne was the only Jungian organisation other than three training schools that had made a contribution to the publication. In recognition of this, the Philomonda Foundation had made the Jung Society Melbourne a foundation member were invited to send a representative to the launch of the Red Book in New York in October 2009. Because of my previous involvement, the committee decided I should be that representative. 
The whole experience in New York is another story I will not go into tonight. But when I came back from New York, my first commitment was to do a talk and a seminar series on the Red Book. Working with the study group, we unpacked it over the next two and a half years. Some people who were part of that group have asked me to repeat the seminars. So here we are tonight beginning that exploration again. The Red Book is a record of C.G. Jung's deep inner work, a search in which he came to know his soul and learned to work with it. The text is a presentation of Jung's own inner world that he entered consciously in the evenings over a period of 16 years beginning in 1913. In this period, subsequent to his movement away from Freud, he examined what were his own foundational grounds. This involved the discovery and exploration of the archetypal levels of the unconscious. Put simply, the Red Book is a record of Jung's revelations from the beyond, as well as a method for and way of making the unconscious conscious. It is his journey of coming to know that the psyche is real, one half of our human world. It is a journey of discovery to the other pole of the world. By expressing his findings, both graphic and written, Jung was able to use this primer material as the basis for his conceptual thinking and his writing in his practice and teaching for the rest of his life. Many of his understandings he made available through the collected works. Of particular importance is his explanation of the path of individuation and the urgent necessity for it in his time and in ours today. Jung's greatest achievement with the Red Book is his commitment to the process, his sole expression over this lengthy period of 16 years. The Red Book is living testimony to his hard work and commitment to bringing his ideas to birth in the real world. If we follow Jung's example, we can find our own unique way of being in the world. His work shows us the way to move beyond the collective, the thinking of the masses, a move toward our full potential as individual human beings. The Red Book enables us to meaningfully translate our own experience of the psyche, our inner self. For the six months beginning in October 1913, while he continued to function in his outer life, each evening Jung turned to his inner world and asked himself, what next? He focused intensely on the material that revealed itself in a process he termed active imagination. These experiences he recorded in the black books. Subsequently, he prepared a text accompanied by images and wrote it up in the Red Book. Jung tells us in the Black Books that he spoke and wrote for those who wanted to listen and read. Jung says of this time spent on the compilation of the book, the years when I pursued the inner images were the most important time of my life. Everything else is to be derived from this. Why did Jung begin creating the Red Book? Essentially, the Red Book is a conversation between Jung and his soul. Jung found himself at midlife dissatisfied. In memories, dreams and reflections, he tells us that a period of uncertainty began for me. It would be no exaggeration to call it a state of disorientation. Jung felt isolated after his break with Freud. In October 1913, he had the first of 12 separate apocalyptic visions. In one, when he was on a train journey to Schaffhausen, he fell into a trance in which he saw a map of Europe covered in blood. Three repeated visions in April, May and June 1914 were of Europe being frozen in a barren winter. These overwhelming visions, fantasies and chaotic dreams caused Jung to be concerned that he might be doing a schizophrenia. 
So he used them instead as a starting point to explore himself, engaging with his fantasies and with the figures that emerged. He cultivated his technique of active imagination. He was the first to take the products of the unconscious seriously and to relate to the dwellers of the unconscious as if they were real people. He realised that these figures, though autonomous, were products of his own soul and he undertook a relationship with with them within his imagination. It was in the midst of these apocalyptic visions between the 12th of November 1913 and 19th of April 1914 that Jung began to transcribe the emergent material into the black books, which became the draft of the red book. Without, with the outbreak of World War I, 1st of August 1914, he realised the apocalyptic visions were in fact premonitions. How did Jung create the Red Book? Having noted the visions down in the Black Books, Jung then added a commentary explanation, telling us the significance of each episode. He often combined this with a lyrical elaboration written in italics in the book. In 1914, he created a draft of the material. In 1915, a corrected draft. Later that year, he began to copy the work onto parchment. His initial plan was to bind these parchment pages into a book. However, the parchment would not hold the ink, so he purchased a large red book and pasted the pages already transcribed into the front of the book. Into the rest of the book, he then transcribed Libra Secundus. On the spine of this book, he had inscribed in gold Liber Novus, the new book. The pages pasted in became known as Liber Primus. Jung worked tirelessly on the book until the 1920s and then he tells us, my acquaintance with alchemy in 1930 took me away from it. The beginning of the end came in 1928 when Richard Wilhelm, a sinologist, theologian and missionary, sent him the golden flower. This is an alchemical treatise, a translation of a Chinese book of life. It contains within it multiple layers of thought based on deep-seated wisdom steeped in mystical symbolism. This work needs to be appreciated from multiple perspectives. In saying this, I'm also describing the Red Book. Jung, because he had taken himself through and recorded his own process, was able to immediately recognise the parallels. The Red Book had found its way into actuality and he could no longer continue working on it. Jung tells us, To the superficial observer it will appear like madness. It would also have developed into one had I not been able to observe absorb the overpowering forces of the original experience. With the help of alchemy, I could finally arrange it into a whole. For Jung, the text reflected what he had experienced, painted and written about in the Red Book. He realised that he, in his engagement with his experiment, with his fantasies and visions, had happened upon alchemy. His own work was informing an alchemical text. It immediately linked Jung's work with many alchemical predecessors and through them back to Gnostic teachings and provided a link to the ancient hidden alchemical stream running through the ages and included the Egyptians. The third section of the Red Book, Scrutinies, was not included in Jung's original Red Book. This section is an extension and includes dialogues with Philemon that took place in 1916. These dialogues, visions, occurred after a break of almost two years, during which time no new material had presented itself. Scrutinies also includes the Seven Sermons of the Dead, 
published as a separate book in 1925 as a trial for the publication of the Red Book. The Seven Sermons to the Dead was published by Jung himself privately, not for use by the public. Jung distributed copies to friends and clients over the years. It was written by him, but the authorship was attributed to Basilides, the famous Gnostic heretic of Alexandria, the city where East and West meet. How many of you have been to Istanbul and stood looking out across the Bosphorus to Asia on the other side, the distance of a short boat ride? The Seven Sermons of the Dread was translated by Stephen Hollier and published in 1982 in English for the first time. What is happening in Jung's outer world in conjunction with the experiences associated with the Red Book? Starting in April 1914, the day after he finished writing the material in the Black Books, Jung set about withdrawing from a number of professional organisations. For him, the theory supporting these organisations was no longer adequate in dealing with the material he and his clients were experiencing emerging from the unconscious. In May, June and July 1914, Jung had a thrice-repeated dream of being in a foreign land and having to come home quickly by ship. This was followed by an icy cold descending. Despite these resignations, Jung was still a busy man in his outer life. Family, romantic affairs, a large consulting practice. Yet no one seems to have been aware of the huge psychological upheaval he was experiencing doing his evening soul-searching work. Jung guarded himself from becoming overwhelmed by his fantasies, not only by maintaining his outer life, but also the very process of creating the Red Book. The various drafts, the calligraphy and the paintings all forced him to find a balance between his inner and outer worlds. In talking about psychosis, Jung said that psychosis itself described the intense bias of the outer world against the psyche. His work was to correct this balance in his life. Jung wrote much of the Red Book work during the First World War when he was restricted to within the Swiss borders. He could not travel, mail was infrequent, visitors rare, and his psychotherapeutic clients from other countries, especially the United States, were not coming. Toward the end of this period, 1918-19, he served as a commandant of a regional internment camp for the English. It was during this time that he began to work with the mandala form, a geometric configuration of symbols. He drew a series of mandalas which corresponded with his inner situation at the time. 27 of these drawings are extant and are the basis of many drawings in the Red Book. He also used the opportunity to hone up on his English-speaking skills, which served him well for the rest of his life. From 1922 onward, Jung held discussions with a number of people about the publication of the Red Book, among them his wife Emma Jung and Tony Wolfe. At the time, though, he was still writing up aspects of the book. In 1924, he asked Kari Baines to make a fresh transcription preparatory to publication. He had already published the Seven Sermons as a trial for the larger work, but he subsequently regretted doing this because he felt strongly that it should only have been associated with the larger work, that it was not to be considered as an independent text. At this stage, during the 1920s, the Red Book was being shown to and discussed among many of Jung's confidants. Some felt that, felt that Libra Novus should only be understood by someone who had known Jung. Others, like Kari Baines, saw it as a record of the passage of the universe through the soul of a man. And just as a person stands by the sea, 
and listens to that very strange and awful music and cannot explain why his heart aches or why a cry of exaltation wants to leap from his throat, so I thought it would be with the Red Book and that a man would perforce be lifted up out of himself by the majesty of it and swung to heights he had never been before. Jung gave a number of people copies of Libonovus, and by 1937 he believed that there were already a number of translations of parts of the work, although he didn't know what parts or by whom they'd been translated. It appears that he allowed those people to read Libonovus, whom he fully, fully trusted and whom he felt had a grasp of his ideas. In 1957, Jung suggested that Leibnovus and the Black Books be given to the, universe, the Library of the University of Basel with a restriction for 50 to 80 years or longer placed on them. He hated the idea that anybody would read his material without knowing the relationship to his life. Paintings from Lee Bonovis were also shown in a BBC documentary on Jung, narrated by Lawrence Vanderpost in 1972. These created widespread interest in the work and the paintings. In 1984, five copies of the work were produced and given to each of the five families directly descended from Jung. In 2000, the family heirs decided to release the work for publication. During most of the time since Jung's death, the original Red Book had been housed in a bank vault in Switzerland, where it still resides today, except when it is on exhibition, which is fairly rare. From as early as 1916, Jung used material from this work as a basis for lectures. In 1918, he published a small book based on reflections derived from his experience, the first of many. In 1925, he gave a seminar in which he used material from the Red Book as the basis of his teaching at that, this seminar. In his autobiography, he tells us, my entire life consisted of elaborating what had burst forth from the unconscious and flooded me like an enigmatic stream and threatened to break me. The numinous beginnings which contained everything was there. Now we will look at what is within the pages of the book itself. The book is divided into three parts. Primus or preparation, secundus or journey, and scrutinies or integration. Primus begins with a chapter titled The Way of What Is to Come. It begins with four quotes from Scripture, three from the book of Isaiah and one from the Gospel of St John. Jung thus associated his own revelations and writings to the prophets and Judo-Christianity. He not only grounded the work in the tradition, but claimed for it for the future, the way of what is to come. The word prophet has two distinct meanings. The concept we are most familiar with is the one who foretells the future. The second meaning, though, is the one that I thought is most applicable to Jung, someone who is in touch with the divine. After these biblical texts, the work then moves into a description of an inner battle between the spirit of the times and the spirit of the deep. The spirit of the deep possesses a greater power than the spirit of the times the latter changing with each generation. Jung tells us, I had achieved everything that I wished for for myself. I had achieved honour, power, wealth, knowledge and every human happiness. Then my desire for the increase of these trappings ceased and the desire ebbed from me. 
The vision of the flood seized me, and I felt the spirit of the depths, but I did not understand him. My soul, where are you? Persona, what Jung presented to the world, and his intellect up until that time, had been the focus of Jung's life. Now he needed to recover his soul. Jung goes on to talk about where he finds himself in relationship to his soul. My soul, where are you? Do you hear me? I speak, I call, are you there? I have returned, I am here again. I have shaken the dust of all the lands from my feet and I have come to you. I am with you. After long years of wandering, I have come to you again. Should I tell you everything I have seen, experienced and drunk in? Or do you not want to hear about all the noise of life and the world? But one thing you must know, one thing I have learned, is that one must live this life. His life is the way the long sought after way to the unfathomable, which we call divine. There is no other way. All other ways are false. I found the right way. It leads me to you, to my soul. I return tempered and purified. Do you still know me? How long the separation lasted. Everything has become so different. And how did I find you? How strange my journey was. What words should I use to tell you on what twisted paths a good star has guided me to you? Give me your hand, my almost forgotten soul. How warm the joy of seeing you again, you long disavowed soul. Life has led me back to you. Let us thank the life I have lived for all the happy and all the sad hours, for every joy and every sadness. My soul, my journey should continue with you. I will wander with you and ascend to my solitude. Following this, Jung is instructed to follow the spirit of the deep. His soul appears in the form of a little girl. He asks the question, how can I attain the knowledge of the heart? She answers, you can attain this knowledge only by living your life to the full. You live your life fully if you also live what you have never yet lived, but have left for others to live or to think. Jung then finds that a self-scorning attitude erupts from within him. He must overcome this by bringing the conflicting aspects of himself into interaction with each other. I had to swallow the small as a means of healing the immortal in me, the inglorious and the unheroic. Bypassing this self-scorning attitude, the first emergence of his shadow aspect, Jung finds he is able to go deeper where the future is revealed to him. His journey with his soul cannot be undertaken by his conscious ego. He needs to sacrifice his, his egotistical claims, to sacrifice himself and learn that every sacrifice is self-sacrifice. He then finds that reason and soul are in conflict. Jung must kill the heroic attitude within himself which dominates him. Otherwise, he cannot overcome his habit of imitating others that his persona has adopted. He is thrown back and forth between fantasies of supreme grandiosity and a whole series of deeply painful experiences that are clearly meant to teach him the lesson of humility. Grandiosity and heroism have to be sacrificed. The capacity to make this surrender is the entry point for the continuation of the journey. Jung shoots his immortal enemy, the hero, the god within. This god almost has to die with each generation, he tells us. 
But this is the bitterest pill for mortal men. Our gods want to be overcome since they require renewal. If men kill their princes, they do so because they cannot kill their gods, because they do not know that they should kill their gods in themselves. Having killed the hero, Jung then descends for three days into hell. The old god image sinks into the unconscious, where by conquering the power of darkness, Jung's psyche, inner world, is transformed and a new order established, making way for the birth of a new god image. Jung's clarity of consciousness is greatly enhanced. Next we come to Jung's first meeting with Elijah, the wise old man, and Salome, who is blind, as well as a snake. Jung tells us about a black serpent living with them, which displayed an unmistakable fondness for me and becomes my friend. Snake grounds him in his instinctual world in this life. The serpent is the earthly essence of man, of which man is not conscious. Jung discovers that Elijah is his serpent father and he asks the question, then who is my mother? Salome tells him that his mother is Maria or Mary, his spiritual mother. This means he is the Christ, which he vehemently disavows and accuses these figures of just being symbols, not being real. The figures defend themselves. We are certainly what you call real. Here we are and you have to accept us. The choice is yours. Jung is absolutely astonished. He decides he will accept them and talk with them, engaging in active imagination with them. Throughout the book we see Jung's gaining in ego strength as he speaks and engages with the figures of his active imagination. It's as if the fantasy figures are sitting opposite him, and more so because he is even rude to them at times, just like an adolescent. After this encounter, Jung understands the necessity and accepts without grandiosity the experiences of transformation as the energies of the archetypal self the energies of wholeness begin to flow through him. Two snakes, one dark and one light, fighting with each other appear. They eventually come to a resolution after taking on something of each other's colour, an image of the integration of some shadow contents, those aspects of ourselves that we want to repress arising from the unconscious. Behind these snakes are Elijah and Salome. They take Jung up a mountain to witness the crucifixion. Jung feels deep empathy for Jesus the man and becomes flooded with the archetypal energy of the self, the Christ. A terrible and incomprehensible power forces me to imitate then a serpent winds itself round the whole body and the cross, squeezes it in its terrible coils. At the same time, Salome wraps her hair around Christ's feet and then cries out, I see. She is cured of her blindness. She has become conscious. The figure of Elijah becomes a flame. After this, Jung cannot take any more and leaves. This is the end of Liber Primus. The basic message of this first book is that of sacrifice, initiation and transformation. It is preparation for the journey to come. We must follow the spirit of the deep and let go of the spirit of the times as a sole guiding principle in our life. Finding your soul requires the sacrifice of the hero. In doing this, one is opened up to an experience of initiation and this is followed by a blessing or ordination ceremony which confirms the sacredness of the work. 
We are to live as Christ did, not in imitation of Christ. How do we find our way in the world, assume full responsibility for and be true to ourselves? We cannot know ourselves unless we know what we are, not just who we are. We also need to know on what we depend, to whom or what we belong, and for what end we were made. We need to undertake our own individual journey and follow it through to the end, whatever that end might be. Carry the burden of our own life, our cross. This is living as Christ lived. However, we need to hold the experience in the middle ground of our being in the world. If we completely identify with it and proclaim that we are Christ, we will be locked up as raving lunatics. However, if we do not at some level believe in our spiritual experiences, we are turning back on them, just as Jung had his confrontation with his figures from the unconscious and accused them of not being real. Liber Secundus. In Secundus, Jung's journey is made up of 21 fantasies or adventures. Toward the end, Jung is given certain gifts to facilitate his way forward. Each one of these experiences enabled Jung to discover another aspect of himself that leads to a knowledge of his soul. In the first of these adventures, he discovers the difference between joy and pleasure. He then discovers the value of imagination and the intuitive learning and the feminine. The next adventure leads to the realisation of the value of the ordinary and that life is a journey with death as its destination. He discovers that words need life and light otherwise they are dead concepts. This is followed by the realisation that we need death to give us perspective on life. The next adventure teaches Jung that meaning comes from within. We cannot expect to find purpose living out our external ideals. He discovers how wounded he is by scientific thinking as distinct from mythological thinking and that the two cannot be integrated and both ways must be transcended if a new way forward is to be found. He discovers that he needs to be able to extract the essence of evil from hell without identifying with that evil. The next discovery is that the way forward is to integrate the divine within himself. After that, he learns that the unconscious has its own ordering principles based on intuitive rightness that cannot be grasped by the rational mind. In the last of the 21 imaginal experiences, he discovers that he has a guide, Philemon, how to use the black magician's rod that he has been given, that his internal structure must be built bottom-up, not top-down, that love and solitude are not mutually exclusive, that he does not own what he births from the unconscious. Toward the end of Secundus, Jung is given certain gifts to facilitate his way forward a magic wand or wand of knowing that allows him to differentiate layers of the personality within himself. This wand is given him by Philemon, his guide and mentor. He is given the gift of darkness. Through this he learns the necessity of insight to know where there are limits. It is sufficient to know thyself and that not even that is problematic. He also comes to know that the knowledge that he contains within himself is all he needs to know. Secundus concludes with, My I, you are a barbarian. I want to live with you. Therefore, I will carry you through an utterly medieval hill 
until you are capable of making living with you bearable. You should be the vessel and womb of life. Therefore, I shall purify you. The touchstone is being alone with oneself. This is the way. Jung has travelled through these 21 adventures and has come to learn so much. Now he must put it into practice by facing the reality of who he is. Scrutinies. On the night of the 24th of June, 1914, Jung's soul spoke to him. The greatest comes to the smallest. After this, nothing further was said, and then the war broke out. This opened my eyes about what I had experienced before, and it also gave me the courage to say all of that which I have written in the earlier part of this book. From then on, the voices of the depths remained silent for a whole year. Again in summer, when I was out on the water alone, I saw an osprey lunge down not far from me. He seized a large fish and rose up into the sky again, clutching it. I heard the voice of the soul and she spoke. That is a sign that what is below is borne upward. Now a new series of visions erupted. These lasted until the 11th of January 1916. It was another intense period of experiences, visions, that led Jung to begin to integrate what he had learnt. First he examined himself. He looks at himself in a mirror and really doesn't like the person he sees there. He needs to give concrete expression to his experiences. We see the way he went about doing this in his creation of the Red Book, the images he created, and then subsequently in his collected works and other subsequent writings, his teachings and friendships during the rest of his life. He sees that what is below will be brought up, that the God within is not the totality of God. He learns to distinguish between the God image and the absolute concept of God as the ineffable, the all-holy, the one. He explores the danger of identifying with spiritual beings or ideas. He begins to understand that the way forward is found in our own experience is not dependent on the authority of others. He appreciates that the instinctual realm is sacred, yet different, that the future includes all that has gone before, the different forms that, that different forms are needed to give expression to this new way Jung has discovered, that the future for gods and humans is based on a relationship of trust, not subservience, a partnership. Human beings must grow up and take responsibility for themselves. That this way forward is through pathos, suffering. I bring you the beauty of suffering, he tells us. The next section is the seven sermons to the dead, which I do not have time to go into tonight. However, the lessons that the dead learn before they depart for their eternal home are that we each have an eternal, unique destiny discovered in living the life we are given. That humans are conduits between the spiritual and the material dimension. That uniqueness is independent of a specific God relationship. Jung tells us in Memories, Dreams and Reflections that the dead became more distinct as the voices of the unanswered, unresolved, unredeemed. After the seven sermons, there is a lengthy dialogue with his soul on obedience, 
the gods are demanding his unconditional obedience, which Jung will not give. Jung is looking for a relationship with the divine where dialogue would be the basis for the relationship between the human and what is beyond human. A relationship based on mutual respect, not hierarchical domination. An equal partnership in which both parties can be and are changed by the interaction. Thus Jung differentiates himself from his anima and from the gods. This gives Jung's ego a footing and ground to stand on. The foundation he had been looking for in his realm of the unconscious during this entire journey. His message is that what we have to do is tend our own garden, stay humble, dialogue and discourse with the gods, stay in our own ego consciousness. Most of all, we need to remember that the way forward is via pathos. I bring you the beauty of suffering. What have I learned from the Red Book? That my soul can find expression in a whole range of different images. This led me over the next five years after I completed the first uh, Red Book seminars to two series of paintings, each of which comprised seven paintings. These two groups of paintings are known as the unseen, the birth of the soul, and the unknown, the birth of spirit. Another thing I learned is that my soul can actually be found in apparently destructive, disgusting images and situations, as well as the nice ones associated with spirituality. That my soul is not personal, but rather my connection to the eternal, a bridge between the earthly and the heavenly. That my soul is a spiritual being. Consequently, I need always to be alert to the possibility that my soul as guide may be directing me away from my earthly humanness into a too spiritualized environment. That my soul is my own self in the spiritual world that we do live in a veil of soul-making, as Keats tells us, that our souls can and are changed by our human experiences. Because our souls are spiritual beings, our human experience does have an effect on the heavenly realm. Included in this idea is that the heavenly realm is not static. I also learned that soul-making is about quality, this quality is achieved through intensification. Its first step is to go down and the next step is to stay with the experience. Intensification gives power and value to our inner life, which is then reflected in our outer lives. Authority, confidence and courage are our outer expression of this. And lastly, that soul exists and can be found in three dimensions, personal, world, and eternal. In conclusion, Shandasani, editor of The Red Book, tells us that The Red Book presents a series of active imaginations together with Jung's attempt to understand their significance. This work of understanding encompasses a number of interlinked threads, an attempt to understand himself and to integrate and develop the various components of his personality, an attempt to understand the structure of the human personality, an attempt to understand the relation of the individual to present-day society and to the community of the dead, an attempt to understand the psychological and historical effects of Christianity and an attempt to grasp the future religious development of the West. Jung discusses many other themes in the work, including the nature of self-knowledge, the nature of the soul, the relations of thinking and feeling and the psychological types, the relation of inner and outer masculinity and femininity, the uniting of opposites, solitude, 
the value of scholarship and learning, the status of science, the significance of symbols and how they are to be understood, the meaning of war, madness, divine madness and psychiatry, how the imitation of Christ is to be understood today, the death of God, the historical significance of nature and the relation of magic and reason. Enough work for any lifetime. Thank you for listening and I hope you found some food for thought in this talk. We hope you enjoyed Mary's detailed and powerful talk on Jung's Red Book. With a sense for Jung's personal context in which the book emerged, as well as the context of the times, Mary leads us through significant images, archetypes and understandings that Jung encountered when he was willing to honour the imaginal and the unconscious, to dialogue with his psyche. Through themes of sacrifice, initiation and transformation, each individual has the ability and duty to find a higher level of consciousness, one that is balanced and integrated. Thank you for listening and please visit us at www.jungsocietymelbourne.com or have a look at our Facebook page.